because he's Canadian again. Welcome to the world famous Jiggy Jaguar radio program. Broadcasting live from Hutchinson, Kansas. Well, I'm sitting here with a linguist. I had a no idea. <laughs> I, love I didn't that. know you were, but I didn't know that you were a wordsmith. <laughs> Call Jiggy right now. 267 22 Jiggy. Hey, Jiggy, what's happening, man? You must be that uh, David Bowie song. Jiggy Break Guitar. Jeff. It's a great name, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Presenting. I'm, I'm Mike Massey, and, uh, you know, you can catch me on Jiggy Jag TV and uh, see a few of my tricks up there. Thank you very much. Jiggy Jaguar. I never knew what freedom was until I saw you lose yours. Kind of a bit of a different show today. We're going to have Dan Perkins. We're going to have IQR Rizzoli. But departing our broadcast today is Don Mazzella. Don Mazzella is going to be going over to our Thursday edition. And uh, we will be uh, chatting with him as we move forward with different guests and things. And uh, Don Mazzella will be with us moving forward on our Thursday edition. Today, Afram Arzelli. And uh, it is going to be a fun interview talking about his books and everything else. AzareliBooks.com. A-Z-R-I-E-L-I Books.com. Deborah Calling is the latest from him. And we are going to go to Skype and chat with him along with Dan and IQ. Going to be an interesting interview today, hopefully... And there's IQ Al Rizzoli. How are you, sir? And uh, that, then we have our guest today, Afram Ezreleli. And um, he has got Deborah Calling. It's the second novel in the Deborah Rising series. It's now available. And uh, you can get it on his website, A-Z-R-I-E-L-I books.com. And um, Avram, uh, talk to us a little bit about this book. Uh, th- th- this is a religious book. This is an interesting book. Tell us all about this book, my friend. Great to be here again. Um, the book is um, uh, not a religious book per se. Uh, it's uh, an adventure, a very exciting book um, uh, filled with action mostly. Uh, but it does involve a great uh, biblical figure. And it, of course, uh, explores uh, issues of faith and um, uh, womanhood and uh, life in the Far East, uh, in the Near East in ancient times. Uh, and faith has been a part of uh, human existence for um, forever. So in that sense, it does explore faith, but in a very um, adventurous um action-filled book. Uh, the, the main character is in her mid-teens, and it is um, a very young woman who will eventually become uh, the famous uh, prophet Deborah, who fought the Canaanites and defeated them to liberate the Israelites in uh, about uh, 3,000 years ago. Yes, well, we're being joined by Dan Perkins as well. And uh, now, Ephraim, uh, this book, uh, incredibly well written. You've got this available on Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, iTunes. Uh, it's available in paperback as well uh, from uh, HarperCollins and some of the other, some of the other folks out there. Um, why did you decide to write this book? 
Well, the project started actually with the first book in the series uh, called Deborah Rising, uh, followed by the new one, which is Deborah Calling. Uh, it's a second book in the series, and uh, a third one is uh, now in the works. The story is uh, fascinating to me because this character, uh, Deborah, uh, appears in the Bible in a very short story about her being the leader of the Israelites. Um, and uh, this is about 1100 to 1200 BC. So this is more than 3000 years ago. And during those times, there were no women leading any nation or, or anything at all. Women had absolutely no rights to own property, to testify, to make any decisions about their own lives, let alone about other people's lives. So this is a very curious uh, character, um, really an, an outstanding and, and unusual character in the Bible. And I've always been curious about it. And this is an opportunity to explore how she could have become the the great leader that she became. Uh, so I'm starting the story. I started the story with Deborah Rising when she's um, about 13 and uh, she witnesses uh, a terrible situation. Her sister gets um, uh, sentenced to death and is stoned to death uh, for a crime she didn't commit. And uh, that kind of launches the story of um, this uh, girl building strength and resilience to become who she will eventually become. Now, IQ, uh, li listening to all this, I know that you study a lot of the, the world religions and things of that nature. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've got some questions for our guest. I have read the story, but I honestly don't remember about her sister being stoned to death. Is that part of the story that you created, or is it in the Bible? That is part of the story that I created. There is actually nothing in the Bible about Deborah prior to her becoming the leader. She appears in the Bible as the leader of the nation, uh, the mother of the nation, and um, and a judge and a prophet. There is no explanation on the, in the Bible about her roots, nothing about her family, or how she became such a powerful woman. So this is, uh, Deborah Rising is the beginning of the story as I imagine it. Excellent idea. Great. I look forward to reading it. Now, uh, now, Dan, uh, you also study a lot of the, the religions, and, and you do a, a, a lot of books uh, centered in the Middle East and, and centered in, in, yeah. in this area. I'm sure you've got some questions here from for our, our guest, Afrin, here. Yes, Afrin, I'm, I'm curious. Um, the, the, if I understand the way this story evolves, she suddenly appears uh, at about 13. And is, I just heard you say that there is no record of her prior to 13. Um, and this, uh, this appearance in scriptures, we know, for example, in the Bible, um, when uh, it's especially the New Testament, there were lots of different people involved in writing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are almost symbols of uh, particular perspectives on Jesus. Um, is it possible that there was um, editorial privilege in the Old Testament that she disappeared? Is, is there possibly that somebody edited out the beginning for some reason? Do you have any sense there? That's an interesting uh, question. I'm not uh, very familiar with the New Testament. I, I've read uh, and, and studied the Old Testament um, for many years. 
uh, and uh, toured the locations in Israel. I lived in Israel uh, until my late 20s, actually. Um, so answering your question, the Bible itself, uh, the stories or the historical account in the Bible appears in the book of Judges. And there is uh, there is an appearance of of her in the story that goes straight into the huge war that she conducted against the Canaanites uh, and the, the victory uh, in which uh, the leader of the Canaanites, uh, a man named uh, Sisra, uh, gets killed and his uh, 900 uh, steel chariots uh, are destroyed. But there is uh, nothing in the Bible about her um, personal history. And the question is, whether it was uh, omitted somehow, it's hard to tell. What I can tell you from from uh, all my research is that uh, linguistic analysis that um, biblical, you know, scholars of the Bible do, uh, secular scholars uh, especially, do a lot of research comparing language and trying to see the differences in the language of different parts of the Bible. Uh, which which has different styles and and it appears to have written either in different eras or different people. Uh, what what there is a consensus though is that the language of the Deborah story and especially there is a song of Deborah which is quite extensive uh, rhymes song about Deborah's war and victory uh, that is uh, analyzed as a very ancient language and actually is. Um, is characterized as one of the oldest parts of the Bible. So in that respect, it gives us some comfort that it may actually be recounting true history. So do you think it's possible, or do you know, as we say in in some of the Christian religions, we used to call it the Old Testament, now it's called Hebrew Scripture. Um, in looking at Hebrew Scripture, this, is, this, this magical appearance of her... Uh, are there precedents with other people who magically appear in Hebrew Scripture? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say magical, because the, if you read the book of Judges um, um, in the original, you know, the way it's written, um, it actually is a, is a series of um, a pretty dry uh, historical uh, chronology. It lists uh, the different judges that um, ruled Israel. Now, let me clarify that at the time, a judge was the ruler. There was no uh, three branches of government as we have now. Um, a judge was also the leader of the of the people politically. And the book of Judges really describes, uh, starting with Joshua, who, as we know, succeeded um, Moses and, and um, led the war of conquer. Uh, into Canaan when the Israelites returned, there is a chronology in the book of Judges that goes through each judge, and there is also kind of a cycle in which the Israelites uh, were uh, faithful, and then they become less faithful and and, um, um, fail to observe the laws according to the the stories, and you have a, a situation where foreign rulers uh, kind of uh, take over and, and abuse and, and oppress the Israelites. Different different kings, um, Moab and Edom and um, Canaanites, etc. Uh, and there are some nations that we don't know much about. But every time there, there is a new leader, a judge, who helps the Israelites find their faith and, uh, you know, be good again, and the cycle brings them... Uh, you know, to war and and war of liberation, and and each of these judges liberate the nation, and and uh, so it's kind of a recurring historical uh, account of uh, several centuries 
uh, of uh, wars for independence, oppression, some independence, and again, loss of independence. Uh, and Deborah is one of those judges recounted there. So it, it, it's not really a magical part of the Bible. It's more um, a historical account. At least that's where it's read. So if, if I understand what you were saying, that there, there is a, uh, a the title was the judge. There are in sequence, uh, uh, historically, a sequence of of judges taking over from the previous judge, and a and a, a line of evolution as as time passes. And 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 so, is there a is there an order sequence, or is it random as it relates to the judges? I'm I'm looking at it from a historical standpoint. You know, if it was. If it was 1200 BC, do the judges go through in a chronological sequence based on life expectancy, uh, you know, all the way up to, to a certain point so that the, the Hebrew scripture shows under these judges, the, the, um, evolution or the, uh, replacement as judges die out and new ones are placed that time as a time sequence. But if I understand you, this particular, person this woman is an interruption or or is she um common with uh the judges in their line of succession well their line of succession is not hereditary so these are these were uh men and one woman uh that that appear not to be related to each other, but but the Book of Judges does give this kind of uh, uh, cycle, uh, starting uh, you know there is a King Kushan of uh, Rishatayim, which is or Rishatayim, uh, which is not a kingdom we we know specifically who was supposedly ruling over the Israelites, and then there is a judge named Atniel. Uh, who came up. Then there was uh, King Eglon of Moab, and Moab we actually know um, as an existing nation at that time. There's a lot of archaeological uh, findings, and, and that king was um, killed by a judge named Ehud, uh, son of Gerah. Um, then there was another cycle, and, and the Bible gives 40 or 80 years in, in, in this case, in, it gives 80 years of peace in which the Israelites were free, then there was another uh, Philistine king, and, and, a, and a judge named Shamgar killed him. And then there was an oppressive Canaanite king named Yavin, or Javin. Uh, and Deborah is the one who um, liberated the Israelites, again, followed with 40 years of peace. So it's, it's a chronology, and uh, there's really no um, specific... Um, uh, uh, language in the Bible that says, well, she was a woman, uh, there's no explanation how a woman somehow became one of those uh, succession of judges over, you know, probably a couple of centuries uh, between all of them. Uh, and that's really what I'm trying to do in, in the Deborah Rising series is to uh, basically tell her adventure, how she, she grew up to become such a formidable woman and how she developed the skills and the resilience and, and broke through this incredible glass ceiling at the time when, when there's really no record of a female leading a nation anywhere until much later. You know, you have the Queen of Sheba centuries later, which may not even be a historical figure. You have much later um, you know, mentions, but um, Deborah is very unique in, in uh, human history, so 
that is really what I'm trying to do is embed, you know, fill up the, the, the blanks in the story. Yeah. When we talked a few moments ago and I was talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that while they're named after apostles, the, the conventional wisdom is that uh, it was people who were alive at the time who knew the apostles who actually were the scribes of the Gospels. In the case of, of Deborah, you said that was the book of Judges. Is that did I get that right? Is that yes. Correct? Yes. Okay. Do we know who the authors were of the book of Judges? We don't. Um, there, there is uh, obviously there is about um, you know probably fifteen or sixteen hundred years, um, fifteen or sixteen centuries between uh, the time of of Deborah and uh, the time of the the Christian apostles. So you know the the the, the way of uh, you know accounting for who wrote what is obviously even much even greater difficulty. But the, there is really no if you look at the at the Old Testament or, or the Hebrew Testament, um, the, there is really no especially not the early parts. There is no uh, authorship uh, clearly credited. Uh, the, the earlier one I think are the the books written by King Solomon. Um, and possibly King David uh, with um, Psalms, um, so that that's probably the earliest um, part of the Bible or the later part of the Bible that we have some idea about the authorship. Yeah. Do you have any any external from the Hebrew Scriptures any historical proof that Deborah actually existed? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I grew up in Haifa, which is in the north of Israel, and uh, I used to go hiking a lot uh, in the Galilee, the, around the Sea of Galilee, the Golan Heights, um, and uh, one uh, favorable uh, destination for hiking was Mount Tavor or Tabor, and uh, Mount Tavor is in the in the Valley of Disrael, just north of Haifa, northeast of Haifa, and it's it's a it's a mountain that's very round and almost perfect proportion, rising in the middle of a prairie, uh, very prominent, and it's it's very close to the uh, Kishon River. Now, this is exactly the location where the story of Deborah took place, and we used to try to um, recreate and and figure out where exactly. Uh, the forces of the ancient Israelites uh, collided with um, the forces of the Canaanites. Uh, so the location, as described in in the Bible, is still there. You can see how the the Kishon uh, River could flood over uh, its banks and create the muddy conditions which helped Deborah, according to the Bible, uh, entrap and and really defeat the heavy steel chariots of the Canaanites. It's a fascinating story that you can actually look there and, you know, stand on Mount Tabor and look down and kind of figure out how she did that. Um, another historical um, evidence is there is tremendous um, archaeological digging in the city of Hazor, or Hazor, as some people may pronounce it. Uh, Hazor uh, was the uh, capital city of the king uh, that Deborah defeated. Uh, it was a major city, um, and it's been um, archaeologically explored now for um, uh, several decades, starting with uh, the famous archaeologist Yigel Yadin. Uh, Yadin uh, excavated Masada before he went to Hatsor. And until now, uh, you can look on YouTube even and see archaeological uh, reports 
um, from Hatzor that shows the incredible uh, wealth and development of that uh, Canaanite kingdom, and it shows um, uh, evidence of burning of walls and structures that are dated to about the same time uh, that we can calculate of when Deborah defeated and, according to the Bible, uh, burned down that place. So there is some evidence, not not maybe enough to uh, to do a criminal uh, conviction, but <laughs> enough to uh, <laughs> substantiate a you know a thirty three year old story. We've got a yeah. uh, great Sorry. guest with us today, Ephraim Ezreli, A Z R I E L I Books dot com. We also have the great Dan Perkins and IQ Rizzoli. And uh, Dan, uh, I, I didn't mean to step on you, my friend. I know you've got some more questions here. That's okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Uh, uh, I'm not known for my political correctness, so uh, I'm going to ask you a question because I want to leave that to another quick question. Where are you from? I grew up in Israel, um, uh, studied, um, you know, uh, Talmud and, and Bible, and um, uh, got a law degree as well in Israel, and then uh, got another law degree in New York, and uh, lived in New York since uh, 89, followed by uh, some years in Arizona and Maryland. Okay. So as, as a uh, former always, I guess, a citizen of Israel. Um, we're about to see something that's uh, been a long time coming next week when the United States moves its embassy from Tel Aviv to to Jerusalem. And there's, there seems to be some uh, consternation on the part of the Palestinians and some other people that that's, uh, that's an affront and, it, and it's, and it's uh, an attack of the Palestinians. And, and I've been talking about that and writing about that in my blogs for some time. And, and the, the point that I make, I've been making is keep in mind that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel over a thousand years before Christ was born. And I'm curious as to if you have any reaction to that the United States, after many decades of not recognizing Jerusalem, the capital, that we now have a president who's decided to do that. Do you have any uh, any opinion on that? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Jerusalem because Jerusalem uh, was, uh, was in existence for, for many, many centuries and, and uh, millennia. Uh, but uh, it was actually a small village during the time of Deborah, and I and I mention it. And actually, Deborah passes by Jerusalem during uh, her journeys in Deborah Calling, uh, and that was a, a fun thing for me to do, uh, having seen Jerusalem go from um, you know a small city and really a divided city in '67. I was born in '62, so I remember visiting Jerusalem before it was unified when the Jordanians controlled half of Jerusalem, and then when it was unified and when we could uh, travel and visit um, the eastern part and, and the obviously um, the, the western wall of the Temple Mount. Uh, so, you know, for me, Jerusalem is, is part of my history as a Jew, um, and um, if you read the Bible, it's filled with um, stories about Jerusalem later on during the kingdom of uh, David and, and Solomon, when Jerusalem really became a great place. Um, 
I think, you know, when you say that, um, you know, moving the embassy to Jerusalem is an affront to uh, Palestinians and other, I think the existence of the Jewish people has been an affront to many nations for thousands of years, the very existence of the Jews. Um, you can go back to the book of Judges and see the stories then, and you can go on to the Greeks and the Romans, um, many nations that no longer exist. Uh, whereas the Jewish people returned to Israel and uh, rebuilt it. And uh, people are now speaking in Israel the same language that the Bible was written on. And it's a language that was not spoken as a daily language for 2,000 years. Uh, and, and now everybody speaks it and, and in Israel. And I grew up, uh, this is my mother tongue. So to me, it's uh, it's a natural thing that uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It's the capital of the Jewish people. Uh, it's a historical uh, focal point for, for Jews. Jews have always prayed uh, to return to Jerusalem. And I think it's only natural. And, and, and by the way, the, the, the United States Congress has passed a law. I think it's already 20 years since yeah. the United States Congress passed a law that requires uh, the, the, you know, the location of the embassy should be where the, the capital of Israel is. Uh, and uh, right. yes, I'm delighted that it's happening finally. Good. I, uh, I, I, uh, I don't want to sound as if I'm being uh, patronizing, but um, <clears throat> I was in the American Army, and my closest friend who went through individual training in Fort Knox it was a young Jewish boy from, from California. And uh, we have... We got separated after we finished, and uh, we rejoined each other after 20-some years, and uh, we've been great friends uh, since then. And and, um, I, and I used to spend time when I would go to California with him and his parents, and and uh, some of my, I know it sounds terrible, but some of my best friends are Jewish people. Uh, they're delightful people, and I could never understand, and I still don't understand, uh, and I asked them, and they don't have an answer. Why is it that this one particular nation has been so persecuted for thousands of years? Do you have a, an answer to that question? <laughs> well, it's it's a very complicated subject uh, with the, with history that's almost as long as as human existence uh, or human history, um, and there are thick books that's been written about it. Uh, I think the, the reasons uh, vary probably from uh, century to century. Uh, there is uh, political reasons, uh, there is uh, religious reasons, um, and uh, it, it's shifting. Uh, I think the majority of people in, in the Western world uh, no longer uh, hold anti-Semitic views or uh, Jewish hateful hateful views towards Jews. But uh, this, this ugly um, phenomenon of anti-Semitism does pop up its ugly head once in a while and um, unfortunately now in the Middle East it's very um, um, fervent the reasons are many it's, it's, it's very hard for me to, to, to analyze this very quickly but I think that when you have a small nation that um, for example um, um, breaks through barriers or, or really um, creates precedence the idea of uh, monotheism the idea that there is one God that cannot be seen or heard. This is, if you look back at the book of Judges, when Deborah, for example, existed um, in the ancient world, people had physical gods. They had effigies. They had little statues, mm -hmm. 
and physical gods, and they had many gods, gods for rain and gods for the sky and gods for the war and gods for fertility. Uh, whereas, um, you know, the the Hebrews suddenly decided, no, there's only one God, and you can't see him, and you can't talk to him, and, and you can't hold him in your hand, and, and he's almighty, and, and he's he's the only real God. So that, that must have been very irritating to a lot of people. Uh, and uh, later on, you know, Jews were always uh, literate, because uh, the first uh, order of, um, you know, a Jewish parent is to teach their kids um, the ancient scriptures. To do that, you, ha- you have to teach your kids to read and write. Um, most people, uh, until recently, and until really, um, um, even my grandparents who were born in Poland, uh, most of the people around them were illiterate. Most Polish people 100 years ago, so 75 years ago even, were illiterate. And the Jews could read and write and speak several languages. So that creates tension. Uh, and I think we can look at every generation and see reasons where that hate um, kind of heats up again. Um, I think we also I would, have... I would, I would, I would, I'm going to give it back to IQ in just a minute, but I just, I just want to disagree with you slightly. Um, I think that the anti-Semitic rhetoric in Europe is out of control. Uh, uh, I understand what's going on in the Middle East. Christians are being persecuted as much as Jews, maybe even more so. But there is a, clearly an anti-Semitic movement in in Europe, uh, I, I, and so I, I I don't think there are things that are quiet all over the world. I think there's a problem in the in the Middle East. I think there's also a problem in Europe. Uh, um, and it's another one of those lapses of a man's uh, ignorance and it's his or hers uh, inability to accept people for what they really are. And, and uh, with that, I'll give it back to Jim and to uh, IQ. May I say a few words? Yes, jump in there, IQ. First of all, the term anti-Semitism was coined in, 19, in 1879 by the German agitator Wilhelm Marr to designate the anti-Jewish campaigns underway in Central Europe at that time. Although the term now has wide currency, it is most definitely a misnomer, since it implies discrimination against all Semites, which of course is not true, because the Arabs are Semites, and nobody is picking on them because they are Semites. Now, uh, Abraham said he, it's a very difficult answer, uh, sorry, yeah, it's a very difficult thing to answer the question that Dan asked about hatred. Hatred of Jews is endemic in two groups of people, and this is not patronizing or insulting. One is the Christians. And the other one is Islam. In Christianity, is because the Catholic Church always accused the Jews of causing the death of uh, Jesus. So it's the blood libel from 1700 years. That's a fact, by the way. It's not propaganda. The other one is Islam. Muslims hate Jews not because a single one of them ever met a Jew. No. They hate Jews because the Quran hates Jews. 
But who authored the Quran? Muhammad. Why did Muhammad hate Jews? Because they would not accept him. By the way, they were not the only ones who did not accept him as the Prophet of Allah. The Christians of Arabia didn't accept him. And the Quraysh's own tribe, the pagans, did not accept him. So what he did, he wrote the prose of the Quran to incite his followers to hate Jews, Christians, and infidels. So hatred by Muslims is not only to Jews. Every Muslim is automatically, by being Sharia compliant, is the mortal and eternal enemy of every human being on earth who is not a Muslim. I hope I explain myself. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. He joins us live here on our broadcast. And uh, we are going to try to reconnect here with Dan Perkins. We've lost Dan Perkins. Um, Afram Ezrazeli and IQL Rizzoli join us today here on our big broadcast, Coast to Coast and Border to Border on TuneIn, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty. Now, um, now Avram, uh, your book, uh, incredibly well written. It's a, uh, it's definitely a, uh, an interesting read. Um, talk, kind of, kind of give us reaction to, to, to what you've been hearing here from IQ. I think the issue of, of Jews and, and the relationship with other people is fascinating. To me, it's always been fascinating. Uh, you know, Deborah Rising and Deborah Calling are my latest novels, but I've written a number of other books. Uh, and um, some of my earlier novels explore uh, the relationship and the tension between Jews and, and uh, people of other faiths. Um, for example, the Masada complex uh, explores the issue with uh, the Palestinians and the Americans, uh, as well as uh, a book I wrote called uh, Christmas for Joshua, about an interfaith family and, and a breakdown. So I think, I think the issue of the relationship of Jews with other uh, people and really the tensions between uh, the different or the major faiths, or you know that's a very interesting and dominant issue that is going to stay with us for a long time. But Abraham, there is no Jew hatred among Buddhists, and there is absolutely no Jew hatred among Hindus. Never. So we only have, and this is not propaganda or being racist. First of all, what I'm talking about is not racism, and people talk about the Palestinians. When was there a Palestinian state in recorded history? I have a challenge, $200,000 to any human being who can find the name of Palestine as a state and the Palestinians as a people anywhere recorded in human history in the last 6,000 years before 1964. Nobody has taken a penny from me. There is no such thing as a Palestinian people. There never was. There were Arabs. Before 1948, you wouldn't catch a single Arab dead calling himself a Palestinian. In fact, it was the Jews who called themselves Palestinians. This is recorded history, not propaganda. They only became Palestinian after 1964 when, the, when Arafat and his supporters created the myth of the Palestinian people. And now Saib Arakat the representative of the Palestinian people, says his people come from Canaan. I challenged him. I sent him an email, $200,000 again. It's always $200,000. I can afford that. And to find uh, 
the word Canaan in the Quran, to find the word Jerusalem in the Quran, to find the word Semite in the Quran. What do we have? We have all the bullcrap. And the whole Western media follows them. All of the, literally, the whole of the Western media is clueless. The Palestinian people, they are enraged. You know why, Abraham, the Muslims are enraged? They are enraged because we, infidels, exist. Who is infidels? 80% of humanity who is not a Muslim. The fact that we exist is enough for them to be enraged. They will never stop in their, their rage until every human being on planet Earth is under Sharia. But when that happens, you have only Sunnahs and Shia, and they'll be slaughtering each other anyway. Back to you. We've got uh, Dan Perkins with us today. We've also got IQ Rizzoli. We also have uh, author Ephraim Azraeli. And um, Dan, uh, I, I want to get your thoughts today on uh, this this Iran situation with uh, with President Trump pulling out of the Iran deal. Also, we'll get uh, Ephraim's thoughts on that as well. But Dan, start start us off here, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I've done, this is, my, I think, my ninth interview, and I've got another one to do, and I did, like, seven yesterday. Everybody wanted to know what I thought Trump was going to do. Uh, he actually went a little farther than I thought he was going to go. I anticipated that what he was going to do was decertify, but that he was going to give the European negotiators some specific period of time, 60 or 90 days, to to resolve the things that he thought were significant conflicts. Uh, and then if they couldn't come up with a solution that was acceptable to the United States, then he would put on the sanctions. So I was a little bit surprised that he, uh, that he, he didn't uh, buy some time to let the counter forces to see what they could do. I'm comfortable with what he did. Um, I, I, I think that, for most people in the United States, and I did an interview this morning uh, on uh, New York City Television, and I, I I have to tell you, Jim, the um, the interesting thing that was going on was the question is, do the American people really care whether we're in this deal or not? And I was told that this morning there was a poll released that said 63% of the country uh, said that we should stay in the deal. Now, you have to take that with a grain of salt because the survey was done by CNN. So they're polling, uh, polling data and their polling science is, is pretty well known as not being very good. They were the ones who were calling for a landslide for Hillary. Um, I think he... I think he he did what I would consider the right thing he to do. Um, I think he probably would have done it regardless of whether or not the Israelis and Mossad had gathered all the information that, that uh, Benjamin showed last week. But uh, he made a campaign promise that he thought this was a terrible deal. You know, and, and there were two points that I had been talking about the last few days that I said that made no sense. One... We had to. We had to give the inspectors had to give them thirty days notice in order to go in 
and inspect to see if they were in compliance. And for the rest of the time, they were self-judging or self-regulating that they were in compliance. I thought that that was, that was absolute stupidity. Um, and uh, why we agreed to it is because we, uh, Mr. Obama desperately, desperately wanted a deal, but he also knew that if he got a deal, he could never get it through the Senate, which is why it was never a treaty. I also think that when you when when many governments around the world say that Iran is the greatest state sponsor of terrorism how how we could allow them to develop nuclear weapons either secretly or not and put a time limit after 10 years they can do whatever they want um I, I couldn't understand the logic other than Mr. Obama was willing to do and make any concessions possible to try and get a deal while he was president of the United States. And 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 we had Kerry out playing uh, Secretary of State again, which is a violation of the Logan Act, um, meeting with the uh, U.N. ambassador from Iran and, and talking to various heads of state in, in Europe about trying to put pressure on the on the administration and specifically Donald Trump to to certify continued compliance. So um, I, it was amazing to watch what happened to the oil markets. Uh, I, I think that, Jim, we we were close close to seventy dollars a barrel today. Uh, when, when the sanctions go in play and and understand that Iran is the third largest exporter of oil in the world. Oil supplies are going to come down. Prices are going to go up. I think this this decision will probably take oil prices to probably $85 a barrel by end of summer, early fall. Um, and I think that, uh, as I thought about this, uh, when the president was talking about his discussion with Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, uh, many of the major... Middle Eastern nations that were in support of what he was doing, that was a very important, that took a lot of steam out of a lot of people's sails because this wasn't just the America, it was America pulling out, but it was America building another consensus. And Donald Trump built another consensus. And I think, Jim, the discussions with Kim will be different because of this decision. Well, uh, Afram, uh, what, what, what do you make of the, uh, the, the situation over there in the Middle East? You're, you're from that area. Uh, you were, you were, you grown up in that area. Give, give, give us your take on everything. Yes, I, I did grow up in Israel and um, served in the Israeli military for four years and um, studied law and got a law degree. But I, I got to say that um, I, I'm going to actually uh, – Speak up for a minute about what the IQ said earlier about the Muslims, yes. and and I take a bit of an issue, uh, even though I grew up uh, under constant uh, threat of terrorism uh, from uh, from Muslims, really through uh, the first you know uh, throughout my childhood and youth. I have to say that treating all Muslims as people who are, you know, hateful of everybody else and aim to subjugate everybody else. I think it's an error. And, and the lesson we need to learn is from Christianity. There's an excellent book 
called uh, um, Constantine's Sword. Constantine's Sword by um, a former um, priest, actually, Dr. Um, uh, James Carroll. And that book uh, really provides a wonderful historical chronicle of the problem that uh, Christianity had with the Jews. As pointed out earlier, you know, accusing the Jews of um, uh, causing the death of Jesus. Uh, and um, there goes about 2,000 years of terrible uh, Christian uh, hate and violence towards Jews. Uh, you know, the Crusaders killed more Jews than, than you know, any Muslims. Uh, you know, they killed a lot more people before they got to the Middle East uh, in all the Jewish communities uh, in Europe. And, and Dr. Carroll actually shows how the Christian hate for Jews uh, facilitated and, and inspired the Holocaust, in which half of the Jewish people in the world uh, were murdered. Yet, if you look at Christianity today, it is not at all, um, um, you know, an enemy of the Jews. Uh, Christians were able to heal themselves. Uh, maybe the terrible events of the Holocaust uh, brought this, uh, you know, somewhat of a miracle. But there is there is very little Christian hate for Jews. There's still some prejudice and, and um, you know, um, kind of uh, opinions about Jews that are not flattering, uh, you know, among Christians. But the Christian faith as a church, the Catholic Church, Protestant Church, the Lutherans, uh, you know, take about the Martin Luther. He wrote the book, The Jews and Their uh, Lies. He uh, was a terrible, terrible hater of Jews. Yet Lutherans today do not uh, hold any hate for Jews. And the point I'm trying to make is that, that Muslims uh, as well, uh, I believe, uh, are evolving. Yes, there is Islamic terrorism. There is uh, a lot of extremists, maybe disproportionately so. But most Muslims in the world are not violent people. They're not looking to subjugate or kill or do any harm to anybody else. They're trying to live a life uh, the best they can. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have neighbors who are Muslims here in, in Maryland. Uh, my wife works with a Muslim uh, a doctor. Uh, there's a lot of very good people who are Muslim, just as there are Christians. And, and being a Jew, when I hear this kind of language against another people, in that case, Muslims, and we hear this also in the political arena, this hateful words towards uh, Muslims and demonizing Muslims, I think it's a mistake. Yes, there are terrible dangers, and, and we need to really be on guard against uh, Islamic terrorism, which is a, a terrible phenomenon these days. Uh, but to, to pile up and, and generalize about all Muslims the same way, to me, it's very sad, and it's the same, to me, it's the same sin that um, anti-Semites committed. So that's the point I'm trying to make about that issue. Abraham, the reason I say what I say is not because of hatred, it's because of knowledge. You cannot find, no human being can find a single verse in the whole of the New Testament, or in the whole of the Torah, or in the whole of the Bible, inciting the followers of Moses or the followers of Jesus, to exterminate, eradicate other people who do not believe as they do. But, I will show you 164 verses in the Quran, inciting the followers of Muhammad to do just that. So, it's not generalization. The terrorists that you are telling us, there are a few, they are not a few. Every single terrorist is acting by quoting from the Quran to justify their action. It's done 
in front of your eyes, stand in front of everybody in the United States, in Europe, in America, and in the world, and everybody is in denial. Everybody is in denial. It's not hatred. I don't have hatred. I have knowledge. I come from Iraq, by the way. You can tell by my accent, maybe. I come from Baghdad. So I studied Islam. I studied the Jews. I studied the Christians. 30 years. I'm not saying that qualifies me as a superior intelligent being. No. But I cannot, I cannot find a single human being so far in 30 years to debate me, to prove me wrong on anything. And this is not a boast. This is a fact. So uh, I'm absolutely right. You would find it let me just let me just respond that that uh, you know I don't know which which Bible you you read but um, I've read the Hebrew Bible uh, extensively growing up and studying it and there is a lot of uh, parts of of the Jewish Torah and and uh, the later Bible where God orders the Israelites to exterminate to exter- there is clear orders to exterminate all the people living in Canaan there's clear orders to exterminate all the Amalekites. There is a story of the first king of Israel. His name was Shaul or Saul. And he lost his crown because he failed to exterminate all the enemies uh, that God uh, ordered him because he spared the animals. He did kill all the people. He was okay about that. But he didn't exterminate all the animals. I can go on and on about you know, very, um, uh, but again, this is biblical language that people today no longer follow. We, we also don't uh, execute um, uh, women the way the Bible requires us to do, the Jewish Bible. There's a lot of, uh, you know, capital punishment that we don't exercise anymore. Uh, there's a lot of things in the, in the religious uh, scriptures that uh, as we move to become more modern and, and, um, humanize, uh, you know, humane uh, societies, we have put it behind us. Many religious Jews no longer, um, you know, uh, practice a lot of the, the language in the Bible. And similarly, I pointed out how Christianity uh, had a tremendous body of scriptures. Uh, and I quoted uh, Martin Luther, who, who was the founder of, of uh, Protestant uh, part of uh, Christianity, who was extremely hateful and wrote, uh, you know, material that is considered scripture, uh, you know, with hate for the Jews. And again, uh, Lutherans uh, healed and Christians healed, and uh, that does not exist anymore. And, you know, just to quote the Quran, you can also quote the Bible. You can also quote uh, other things. Uh, the point I'm making is that people um, become more sophisticated, more humane, and realize that part of the you know ancient um, uh, writings that people wrote you know a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago uh, is no longer applicable to today's world. And many Muslims are not filled with hate. And this is not denial. I, I served four years in the military. I, I know the danger of Islamic terrorism. Uh, that does not minimize it. But uh, Muslim terrorists uh, constitute a tiny part of Muslims in the world. And we should remember that and uh, make friends and help uh, Muslims, um, you know, integrate into the, the general uh, civilized society. And I think uh, there is there's a lot of hope that um, uh, the same process that, that the Hebrews went through and later Christianity went through, uh, the Muslims will go through and um, 
become a part of, uh, you know, peaceful society. But Abraham, again, you missed the point I mentioned. I have to rub it in with all your respect. I said you cannot find the verses that you're telling me about the Bible. I know exactly what they are. But they were not commandments forever. These were commandments at that particular time, in that particular era, and that was it. But the Quranic verses are open-ended. It's eternal until all of humanity is subject to Sharia. No, I cannot concede even a millimeter. Because this is a subject which is so important. The greatest threat to humanity in the 21st century is not nuclear weapons. But Muhammad, fundamentalist Muhammadan Islam, with or without weapons of mass destruction, as 9-11 proved. Sorry. Unless you can separate this in your mind, we're not going to solve the problem. The Bible does not incite the followers of Moses to murder people eternally. The New Testament doesn't do that. The Quran does that. Sorry, but we have to disagree. Uh, can I jump in there, Jim? Yes, go ahead. Uh, you know, it, it, that was an, uh, I was fascinated by the, the exchange between the two of them. Let me throw a, a, a little different perspective. I, I agree with our guests that we are perhaps a better educated society than we were 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. As he so aptly pointed out, the Jews were the most educated people. Uh, the people around them were not, and, and perhaps thought that, there was, that uh, there was something wrong and they needed to deal with that. The idea here, however, is that if we look at all of the major Christian religions of the world, they by and large are all in decline. They're in decline because the membership no longer believes that they need a moral compass, that they can figure out things on their own. And so they don't go to church, they don't have a sense of community, they don't pray. They are secularists. It's one of the biggest challenges all over the world is that we are developing a secular society, and it's why we have problems with fundamental moral decisions, because we don't have a compass. When, when you say that the, the Christians have evolved because we're, we are we believe things differently today than we did 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. It is that movement away from the fundamental principles of our religion that gave us the moral compass to do what we were supposed to do. I believe that's the biggest problem that we have in our country today, and in many countries in, in Eastern and Western Europe, there is no moral compass. We look at what's happening to the leadership of our country. We look at the decisions that the Obama administration made and other administrations have made and how they've sacrificed the American people, its security, whatever. Um, we don't have a compass anymore. 
and we have a bunch of a significant portion of unhappy, unfulfilled people who might be highly educated, but they have no relationship with a higher power. I have four sons. They were all raised in the Catholic Church. None of them go to church. Haven't gone for years. They don't need, they say, they don't need to have a sense of community, a sense of belonging to something, a sense of worship, a sense of prayer. They don't need it, they say. But in reality, they do. And a world that doesn't have room for a moral compass, in my opinion, is a world that's destined for great failure. It's an interesting take. Uh, before we let everybody go here, um, Dan, uh, bring us up to speed on your nonprofit and uh, radio program and books and everything else. Sure. Songs and Stories for Soldiers. We just finished last weekend an honor flight from Fort Myers to Washington, D.C. The average age of World War II veterans that we took were 88 years of age, probably the last trip they will ever take. Uh, we gave them our MP3 players as they came off the plane when they came back. Um, we're doing it again in next month with the honor flight in, in uh, Tampa and are looking for other places. Today, I literally, before the show, was in um, Port Charlotte at the State of Florida Veterans Affairs a long-term facility for veterans in Port Charlotte. Uh, half of the facility are early-onset dementia. The other half are uh, dementia and uh, advanced dementia and Alzheimer's. And uh, they love the players for the purposes of just sleeping, the music to sleep. Um, uh, still banned from Facebook. People can't believe that they, they would ban me, but... Uh, I'm finding other people who are also banned. And um, I'm about to bring out a new children's book, Jim, um, written specifically uh, at the request of a foundation here in Fort Myers to give to children in the new children's hospital. And it's a book called Timmy and the Little Red Wagon. The Galisandro Children's Hospital here in Fort Myers is what they call a red wagon hospital. I don't know whether you have those in Kansas or not. Okay. But instead of transporting the children on gurneys, they transport them whenever possible in little red wagons. And this is a story about a little red wagon that was used over two generations, and the second generation uses it in the hospital. So it's designed to be given to the children who are coming into the hospital because it can be a scary thing and helps to prepare them for going to the hospital. And radio shows doing well, and um, um, we're excited about uh, our new potential syndication opportunity over over the next uh, few months, and then on into 2019. That's enough. IQ, fantastic. IQ, what do you have for us, my friend? Just Google Arashuli, A L R A S S O O L I, and get enlightened. Fantastic. Well, uh, Afrim, before we let you go, how do people access your books and uh, find you online and everything else? Absolutely. Um, well, my website is azrielibooks.com, A-Z-R-I-E-L-I, books.com. Uh, the novels, uh, 